0: In the Indian culture, there is the tradition of word of mouth, so teachers tell their students who tell their students, and in the ascetic community, it is still very secretive, and it is still very word of mouth. That's why we here in this country don't know that much about it, Uh, but people are learning more. It's almost like... Uh, scholars who are anthropologists are going and living with the ascetics and their practitioners as well as scholars, and they're picking up like some of the truths of these things. So, what uh, we're going to start with, what we do know. So, these are clay tablets that are 5,000 years old, and they're excavated, they were excavated in the Indus River Valley in Gujarat, India, and these were actually merchant seals, like it would be. On a product or something like that. And they've depicted animals, plants, mythological figures. And some people say that this particular one, the Pashupati seal, proves how old yoga is because they say this is a picture of Shiva with the horns and these animals. You, you know, if you see pictures of Shiva, they have animals around them. So there were no writings at this time, there was just that tradition of oral transmission. And so the seal isn't actually sufficient in itself to conclusively prove that the existence of yoga was in this early time period. So they call it pushu means beast, and pati means lord, so lord of the beast. And so though all we we don't know for sure, I just bring this up as this is a very early documentation of yoga. So, I want to talk about the area where Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism, and what's known as Shranam, Shramanas originated. And this is in, uh, let's see, I have a little pen here, northern India. We got the map out today. So, Nepal and Kashmir is over here, and Tibet, and all this. This was called the Mugada region in northern India. And out of this region is comes a lot of, it's a central area for philosophical and cultural practices and ideas such as samsara, asceticism, transmigration, karma, nirvana, and renunciation were all birthed in this area. So I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit about what all this means. But you know how Jimmy talks about the uh, the, Brahm, the, Brahm, the Brahminical priests. Well, they kind of ran everything, and they were like the church, and so people had to pay them to do these sacrifices and all this kind of thing, so that this is how they, um, you know, got their paid for their sins or however you want to think about it. And so, as communities got larger and larger, there were small cities formed in Northern India, and they confronted the problem of suffering. So people suffered, people got old, they got sick, there were people dying in the streets and they would see this. And so people wanted to confront the idea of suffering. And so there was a movement, it's kind of like the hippie movement, back to the land, back to the commune. They were called shramanas, which means strivers. And so they created unorthodox, they created unorthodox practices to confront their suffering. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about how these ideas got started and um, what they're about. So that's the area that these oops, oops, sorry. So the Shramana movement, the early ascetics in India were called the Shramanas. So they confronted their suffering with techniques to modify their karma. And this is where the idea of tapas comes from. So today, Jimmy talked about tapas and that's creating the internal heat. And this, these, they would create practices to burn their and relieve their past, present and future karma. So Shramana also means strivers. So they, this included living in remote ashrams, fasting, renunciation of worldly life, such as family, homes, possessions, sitting still, creating difficult circumstances in everyday living, adopting difficult stillness, physical postures, standing on one leg, holding their arms up for 12 years, Creating internal heat or tapas, so that's what that means. Tapasya is to feel the inner heat. So you know when you're in a yoga position and you're sweating and you know you're just really burning up, and that inner feeling that there's a name for that. It's called tapasya. <laughs> anyway, so tap means heat, and the notion that actions have an effect on our existence. The soul passes through various incarnations before becoming liberated from the cycle of life. So they wanted to confront the problem of their suffering and liberate themselves from coming, keep coming to come back over and over again. And this is where the idea of asceticism uh, was created, to create tapas. So you know how Jimmy talked about brahmachara, so their practices were actually called brahmacharis, and still to this day, a lot of them are very secretive. We'll get into that. Okay. So we're going to talk now about what we do know about yoga. So Buddha lived in the 5th century, so that's like 400 B.C., Uh, And texts about Buddha's life were available from the first century BC and they contain information about Buddha's experiences with ascetic yogis in the Magadha region. So Buddha was from the Magadha region and he experimented with ascetic lifestyles. So if anyone here has studied Buddhism, you know that before Buddha actually sat under the Bodhi tree and experienced enlightenment, he spent some time with ascetic yogis. Uh, and he did not have a taste for these practices. And he, re, it was reported that he had experiences such as becoming very thin. He, protect, he practiced something called Kachari Mudra. And that's a meditation technique involving the placement of the tongue during breathing exercises and meditation. And it's an early pranayama. Uh, and holding his breath, which is a, called kumbhaka, and he reported that he felt an unbearable heat inside himself like he was being roasted over hot coals. Buddha also reported squatting postures hanging upside down from trees known as bat pendants. So this is the first mention of a yogic inversion in written history. So the in the first century, scholars wrote down the oral tradition of Buddha's life and included ascetic yogis. This is one of the first writings we actually have about yogis and their practices. Then we have the Traveler's Reports from Alexander the Great from 4th century BC. So around 326 BCE, uh, Alexander the Great reached India and along with his army he took Greek academics with him who later wrote memoirs about geography, people, and customs they saw. One of Alexander's companions um, at, you know, kind of described this to a scribe named Strabo. And so basically they ran into these ascetic yogis two different times, and they reported, and they called them Mandanese, Indian yogins. They practiced aloofness, had different postures, standing or sitting or lying naked and motionless. They also described how um, they had undisturbed calmness and mindfulness through balance. So they also had some other reports where some yogins came out to the army and visited them and they stood on one leg and they meditated and they just kind of hung out in the hot sun all day long and nothing seemed to bother them. They were naked. They just had ash on them. And then in the evening, they went back into town, and they, that's where they begged for food. So we do just to, those are very early reports of ascetic yogis. All right. So here at this is this is a, a relief from 25 to 50 BC, and here we have a depiction of an ascetic with his hut. His water pot, so this is one thing they still carry to this day, and his yoga bata, yoga strap. So here you see his yoga strap around him. So this is a very early depiction of a yogi, an ascetic yogi. And so typically, and I'll show you more about them, they wear their hair in braids they call jata, and it's... um, And they also smear ash all over their body. They have a water pot. They sometimes carry like a cane or something to lean on. Um, And they just don't live in houses. They might have a hut. All right, so here's some pictures of India's ascetic holy men. Um, And there's several sects to this day. And here we have, here's an older pitch picture from earlier in the 20th century of some, and this is a more recent picture of some um, Ramanandi Tiagis doing some Hatha yoga postures. I think we were doing this today. Okay. Like, <laughs> so, there's... Just <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> they are the
0: originators of Hatha yoga. Hatha means forceful. And Jimmy talks about that forcefulness. Most other teachers don't talk about it, and that's where it comes from, because they wanted to force the tapasya, the tapas within their body, to burn their karma so they didn't have to keep coming back again over and over again. And they generally were celibate. So to this day, there's a lot of sampradayas, and that's the name for their like little tribe. So there's the Nath sampradaya, the Shiva Dasnami Nagas, the Ramanandi Tiagis. These are Ramanandi Tiagis and the Udasi Nagas. Now, the Ramanandi Tiagis follow Vishnu. These two follow Shiva, and these are Jains. But all these particular religions all came from that Magadhar region. And so it's important to understand their ideas. Now, one of their ideas is the Bindu, the point-of-life force. So you know how Jimmy was talking about, like, the white with the... Star in it. That's a bindu. Some people call it the blue pearl. And there's one bindu, one point of life force, but it can refract into several. So you can have several within your body. But they wanted to preserve their life force, and one of the ways they did that was because they didn't have, they didn't want to have sex because they believed, whether this is true or not, they believed that this dissipated their life force. Bandas, muscular locks. So we know about Bandhas, Mula, Udhyana, Jaundara, you know when we do this and we suck it all in and go down, we're doing these ancient Bandhas. It comes from them. Tapas, the creating of heat in the body to burn karma. Renunciation, living outside of society in unorthodox ways. And they just, they, they take great pride in this. Karma and samsara, the cycle of repetitive lifetimes, They have an oral tradition and still to this day many secretive practices, and those practices are called brahmacharis. They are the originators of hatha, forceful yoga, using force to create tapas. So, you know, you can talk all you want about the Mahabharata and Pantajala Yoga Sutras. This is where hatha yoga came from. And a lot of people don't really realize it. Here's just a slide of some... They have a big uh, party called the Kumbhla Mila. And these are just some pictures from the Kumbhla Mila. And here you can see they're all walking to the river. They walk naked to the river in ash and they take a bath. And it's at a sacred time. And this is just a slide of that. So our ascetic holy men do a lot of unorthodox practices. And we're going to talk about their fire tapas. So this is called the Dooney Tap. One of the things about them is that they kind of hang around in a replicated cremation ground. And so they call it their Dooney. And there's a fire pit in the middle. And they kind of hang around in that and, and do their thing. Um, and so this is called the Dooney Tap. And it's an 18-year practice. And what they do is they build these fires I have another slide, too. They build fires, and the first year, you might have five fires around you. So for like three months of the year, you'd sit in the fire, you do bandhas, pranayamas, and then after you've done your meditation, you do hatha yoga. And then in the last years, you actually put a burning pot of coals on the top of your head, so you can see the smoke. And this is done in the hottest part of the day, in the hottest time. It's 100 degrees there, and they're doing this thing called duni tap. Here's some other pictures. So you can see he's got his fire laid out, and now he's doing some hatha yoga postures around the fire. So Bikram didn't invent hot yoga. It's been around for a long time. Create the heat was a uh, to create heat is a type of tapas. So it's a type of way of creating heat within you. And so it's kind of like they would pick something that they like some of them would just hold their arm up in the air for 12 years or stand on one leg all day long and then switch to the other leg the next day. And they would do this for a period of time. And this was a way to create Renunciation and less attachment to life, and they believed that if they did this and they stayed celibate, that it burned through the karma, the seeds of unstruck karma in their sushumna nadi. Now, there's a little bit of truth to this, but at the same time, you know, I'm it, we're, I'm trying to explain to you something that makes no sense to us, but this is where it comes from. Um, I don't sure. The, in the picture, yeah. the person in the white standing there, who would that be? That's just another yogi standing there looking at him. Yeah. It, it, like, yeah, he's just standing there. Yeah. He's just, hey, somebody's over here. This is just, you know, around the Dooney, at the Dooney tap. <laughs> Where were the women? Okay. Ha, you could ha, do ha. a whole college course on this okay. because there are women renunciates. They're rare, and back in the olden days, they believed, this is before hashtag me too, they believed that women's renunciation was in the home taking care of children, and no matter what the circumstances, that was their renunciation. And basically, there are um, reports of women ascetics, women scholars, and uh, women saints in India. They're few and far between. I used to have this little book of all the women saints, and I would read about their lives. Usually, they had really horrifying lives, and they overcame everything with their love of God. And I used to like really, <laughs> I used to really be into it. But um, mostly, what we know about is mostly male, and so I, I'm just approaching it from that. Of all the uh, if you're gonna, how would I say this without butchering it, but of the, all the other schools, when you come into tantra, at least there was some women allowed. Like oh no, Tantra's a whole different okay. scene. Okay. They actually, I'm going to talk about tantra. It's so unbelievably complicated that you can't. I'm only, I can only start at little places and show you things. We're going to get to tantra. Okay. Because this is ascetic sampradayas, and so basically these are guys that ran away from home, didn't, don't have any clothes, live outside society, think up crazy things to do to themselves that, you know, are painful that create tapas in their body, and live and live around cremation grounds. What was their intention? Like what? I they think- wanted to. Um, absolve their sufferings to come back, so they didn't want to come back lifetime to lifetime. So I thought karma was like service. I, I, don't, I don't understand. <laughs> That's yeah. Do It's I a it's yoga of action. Okay. All right, so. I don't understand the burning of the karma. I okay, so every action has a reaction. And so they believed I'm not trying to tell you what to believe right, Okay. Yeah, yeah. they believed that that they had have, they have the idea of samsara which is the returning lifetime after lifetime after lifetime and the reason that you would come back is that you had karma that you still had to deal with oh, okay. okay and a karma yogi is someone who does service For humanity as their path, and it's their renunciation. So there's different paths. There's the meditation path, there's the knowledge path, there's the Hatha Yoga path, there's all different paths. So just to kind of give you, but anyway, this is a tapasya ritual, and in in my, I just think it's mind blowing. This is the original Hatha Yoga. Yeah, great. Okay. All right, so we're gonna talk about the the very first actual scripture or writings where hatha yoga is called hatha yoga and the, this is dhatatreya shastra and it's from the 13th century ce and it's the first text to teach hatha yoga practices and call it hatha yoga so the text is attributed to a sage named kapila Kapila is like the skull, and they would have these skull bowls, and they would beg with their skull bowls. So this guy, Kapila, was known for his unorthodox practices, like living in a cremation ground and, you know, who knows what they did. Uh, And he was from the Magadha region. So Dada is actually one of those mythical figures that probably lived in real life um, but is also attributed to being an incarnation of Vishnu and he is the leader of one of the uh, ascetic holy men sects, the Ramanadi Tiagis. So you'll see pictures of this guy and he always shows three heads. So it's creation, sustenance, destruction and you'll see with Nandi the bull that that just means Dharma but you also see him with four little dogs. And it was said that his little dogs were so awakened and enlivened by hanging out with him that they could say the Vedas, that they could speak the Vedas. That's just a story. But I always liked Dattatreya. So he was an ascetic yogi, but, so they they basically, um, this guy Kapila wrote a book about it, and it's the very first Hatha yoga book. And the first text where mudras and postures were called hatha yoga and it's the yoga of force or stubbornness so most of the focus was on control or manipulation of the breath and the bindu and the energy centers in the body and this was to awaken the immortal energy or the samadhi so you know how jimmy talked about samadhi today they believe this awakened this within them so key vital subs- substances such as semen um, needed to be cultivated and protected by the ascetic holy men. And they used various breathing techniques, mudras, or seals. So a mudra, like today we did um, this mudra when we were meditating, this creates a seal in your body. Also that heel that goes up underneath, and uh, that's a type of a seal as well. Uh, and so the notion of bindu as the vital principle or energy um, it, uh, and the mudras and the seals include Jalandhara bandha, Uriyana bandha, Mula bandha, Kachari mudra, that's the tongue that goes back into the soft palate. Um, and it's a well-known meditation technique. Vidroli mudra, Visparita inversions using gravity to manipulate the bindu in life force to the head. So I guess if they just felt like they were losing it, they'd stand on their heads. So we all know that you know if you're you know standing on your head. So this is, is where we see very early descriptions of the Bandhas. And these Bandhas we do in every class. So I just think it's interesting that this is where it came from. And so they didn't have very many postures. But we're going to move along because I've got a lot to talk about. So then we have Tantra. So everybody thinks Tantra is some kind of sex act. And Sting did it for four hours. A <laughs> hundred years ago, a man who lived in San Francisco badly translated one of these tantras and made it all sexual. And he made it all up, and they call that neo tantra. So you'll you'll hear about, you know, Tantra as some kind of long sex act or something. But Tantras are actual and it, it makes up maybe one percent of Tantras. If, and they're usually it's usually about the non-dual view that you could do anything in life without getting attached to it. Um, but most tantras are conversations between a deity and a siddha, an enlightened being. So maybe someone who spent years in meditation or did yoga, and they would hear that they they would be like the rishis, and they would hear God in their head. Um, and so. These esoteric traditions of writings between a deity and a siddha have the use of mantra, the importance of a teacher, the use of visualization, diagrams, mudras, meditation, ritual, chakras, kundalini, and cities. So in every yoga studio, they'll talk about chakras and kundalini, and it came from tantra. It didn't come from the ascetic community. So only about 20% of the tantras have even been tra- translated, and there's many modern schol- scholars, and some scholar practitioners are presently doing some really interesting work, including Professor Sanderson from Oxford University, Christopher Wallace, who I've studied with for many years, Christopher Tompkins, I also study with, Jason Birch, Seth Powell, James Mallinson, and many more. So. I studied with Christopher Wallace and also this other guy, Paul Mueller Ortega, when I lived in the ashram in the early 1990s. And they, at that time, were translating some texts from Kashmir, and they were Shiva Tantra texts. So that's where I first got turned on to some of this stuff. And then later, through my friendship with Christopher Wallace, and this last summer I went on a meditation retreat with Christopher Wallace. He turned me on to all these other scholars because he not only speaks, writes, and reads Sanskrit, he's also translated a lot of things. And because he's a practitioner, these new translations are a lot better than what maybe somebody did 100 years ago. So he turned me on to this site called academia.org. And what happens is the academics write papers, and they post it on this. And you can go on there and read their papers. So I got tuned in to some of these people, and I've gone on there and read all their papers. And then even like made Facebook friends with them, and then bought their books, and read their their PhD dissertations. And this is how I've learned this stuff. <laughs> so th- this is Tantra. And Tantra was a major religion from the 5th to 13th centuries in India and then the Mongols came in so that Tantra went out of um, it was, you know it just kind of went out of style kind of thing and other religions came in but at that time it was major so we'll talk more about it so famous Tantric authors who I studied is this guy named Upaladeva Abhinava Gupta Keshe Maharaj and modern-day translators of the Tantra, Paul Mueller, Ortega, I, I mentioned them, um, Alexis Sanderson. And so if you're interested in that, uh, I suggest you get the book by Christopher Wallace called um, Tantra Illuminated. He explains everything. And just kind of look them up on Facebook and look them up on academia.org. I've also studied with some of them from uh, University of London So, let's get to the very first comprehensive Hatha Yoga text, which is from 1450 CE, the Hatha Pradipta. So a lot of times, like, you know, yoga teachers will say the Hatha Yoga Pradipta. It isn't really the Hatha Yoga Pradipta, it's the Hatha Pradipta. It means a little light on Hatha. So it's a little manual that this guy named Swatmarana Compiled, so it's a compendium of methods and means, um, where the goal, the yoga as a goal, is attained by using the Hatha method. So you can attain yoga using other methods, and this is where people get confused. But we're Hatha yogis; we're into it. So this is our method, and we may meditate, we may do other things, we may do selfless service, we may. Um, have other you know we may help people whatever we may donate money but hatha yoga so hatha is defined in this manual as force stubbornness and insistence features include an asana kumbaka which is breath retention mudras or seals nada which is the focusing on the internal sounds that arise in practice this is not a popular thing right now it went out of style so a lot of people sometimes do hear things in meditation. Might sound like this. <laughs> um, and that's the nada, but they're not, you know. So nada is found in early tantric tests. And so these practices that Swatmarama compiled were not for the ascetic audience. He compiled them, they were for lay people. People became interested in yoga. What are these ascetic yogis doing? It, you know, and so he, the ascetic yogis keep all their other practices secret, but these got let out of the bag in 1450, which isn't really that long ago, because we always think, oh, it's 5,000 years old. Well, no, the first really written compendium manual is from 1450, and so, um, and the yeah, so basically. Um, it's the a little light on Hatha. So they had eight meditation postures, seven seated postures, including Danarasana, upside down karmasana, and matsandrasana, which is the spine twist. So when you are doing those postures, this is where they come from. So the Hatha Pradipka actually Swatmarama actually borrowed some things from other texts that they didn't call it Hatha Yoga. And some of it was from some Buddhist and Tantric texts. So this is where it gets confusing because everybody borrows from everybody else. It's, in that world, it was very fluid. Everything kind of, you know, the tide went in, the time, tide went up. So the Amarita city taught the, tantric philo- the Buddhist Tantric philosophy of liberation, and there was a concept of Bandhas And then he also borrowed from the Amaroga Praboda. And that was the first text that introduced the concept of Kundalini. And those are, uh, you know, tantric origins. And so that Amaroga Praboda is actually from the 9th 10th century CE. And that is specifically known as the stream known as Kala Tantra. And it has origins in the Nath Sampradaya. So the Naths. So when we say, because Jimmy talks about Garakshanath and Matsundrasanath and in his history, these were the Sampradaya that the Naths came from. So also, um, you'll also hear sometimes people say, oh, it's a, it's a Kala practice. Well, usually they don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> but <laughs> that's where the word comes from. And Jimmy does talk about the Kala, the Kala's as well. So basically, um, they had the uh, maha mudra. So they had Sharasana, for instance. They had groin seals for bindu energy. They had the maha bandha, the muscular locks. So the maha bandha is the combination of all three, the mula, the uddhyana, and the J- jalandhara. And, so, and then they had the maha Beta, which was a seated asana. They also listed four grades of practitioners, weak to outstanding. So they're the very first text that mentioned the idea of kundalini shakti so it's thought that the nath tradition drew heavily on tantra and had many great teachers and i'll touch on them in future slides so many people translating sanskrit tantra and buddhist teachings are now seeing correlations so there's this guy named jason birch and he just found another copy that no one's ever seen before of the yoga bija which is attributed to Garakshanath in some library in Mysore or something. And right now, you know, he's a Sanskrit scholar and he's, um, he. I actually talked to him on Facebook. I was like texting him, what is that Yoga Bija you're doing? You know? And he said, uh, it's it's gonna be far more interesting than um, when he gets it out because he found this text in a field work trip in 2004. And, um, basically it opens, it's, uh, it, it kind of changes what we're going to know about. I can't wait for the book, but, um, let's see. Okay. So then they also, um, uh, there's many Shaiva tantric texts and others. So basically this summer, a whole bunch of these scholars got together and they were, they were putting the. Slides of the texts up on the wall and comparing them, and they're they're going to write a book about it. So it's very, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. But we do know the mythic story of Matsundrasanath. He was born in Bengal, India, sometime between the 10th and 12th century. Jimmy talks about him. He established hatha yoga as part of the tantric Kala path and the Nath tradition, and wrote many early texts on the practice. And he was the teacher of many great early Hatha yogis, his most famous student being Garakshanath. So it's her, it was said that he heard Shiva and Shakti talking while he was in the belly of a fish and he learned the practices of Hatha yoga from Shiva. So after he was cut open from the fish, he taught the world Hatha yoga. But there's other reports that he lived in a cave in Nepal for 12 years. And so I kind of think the belly of the fish is when he lived in the cave. But. Who knows? Supposedly he was a fisherman. So here we have a little picture of um, Garakshanath. And they think there might have been more than one Garakshanath because he supposedly lived for 200 years between the 11th and 13th century. So people could have lived that long, and if they did, great, but it could have been a couple of different, because there were many books written. And um, so... He talked mostly about postures, control of breath, withdrawal of the senses from external objects, fixing the mind on a single object, abstract meditation, the identification of the self with the object of meditation, and he also detailed six stages of yoga. So he wrote many great books, um, the Garaksha Gita, the Garaksha Samhita, the Siddhasadanti Padanti, which many people um, many Hatha yogis have read because it, it's a good compendium. The yoga Martandara, the yoga bija, the yoga chittamani. Um, and so the yoga bija teaches about mantra, Hatha, laya, and raja yoga as a sequential system of practice. So laya yoga is what they call, it's from Tantra, and it's the yoga of dissolution. So when we lie in savasana. We've done our postures. We lie in sabhasana. Then that is from Laya Yoga, and that is from Tantra. And that is where they say the magic happens. So we get that posture from Tantra. Interesting, huh? Mm -hmm. So where some of this stuff comes from. We'll just move along. i get got a lot to go on here. Um, All right, so now let's just slide right into the 15th and 18th century so we have some more yoga texts that come up so in 1525 there's a text on the kachari mudra and then in the late 17th century which is the 1600s where is the hatha ratna valley and that was written by a man named srinivasa and this has had 10 mudras eight cleansing techniques, nine kumbakas, those are breath controls, and 84 asanas. So this is where we first see 84 asanas. And then in the 18th century, there was another book written that had six cleansing techniques, 32 asanas, 25 mudras, and 10 pramyan, pramyan, uh, pran, pranayamas, and that's the Girandasa Samhita. I actually have a copy of that at home. It's kind of hard to read. Now this Jog Pradipka from 1737 was written by somebody in the Raman he was a Ramanandi. So these are these I showed you some pictures of the Ramanandi some pradaya. And the Jog Pradipka had eighty-four asanas, six cleansing techniques, eight kumbakas, and twenty-four mudras. So that you can see as time went on, there was only fifteen postures in the Hatha Pradipka. And now a couple hundred years more later, there's 84 postures. So we can see that yoga has been fluid. It has changed. It's moved along. So I'm going to just slide right into how did yoga come? So how did yoga come to um, the West? So I'm going to start with Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna lived in the 1800s. This is the only known picture of him and he was a Bengali saint and he was the teacher of a man named Swami Vivekananda and he influenced many 20th century uh, teachers. So I'm just going to show his picture, we're not really going to talk about him. Here, Swami Vivekananda, he was from Bengal, he lived from 1863 to 1902. He was a disciple of Ramakrishna and I just showed you his picture. And he actually introduced Hinduism at the, Parliament, um, at the Parliament of World Religions in Chicago in 1893. And it's interesting that I live in Massachusetts, and he actually lived and came and lived in Massachusetts for a few years. He had people there, some wealthy people, that sponsored him. And there's a couple of churches where I live, and people actually come on pilgrimages to come to the churches to see where, Rama, uh, where um, Vivekananda spoke. So he was the very first one. He was very popular at that time. We didn't have the internet back then. This was, you know, the turn of the last century, and people were very interested in Asia. They didn't know anything about it. So he was the very first one to come to the West that we, you know, know about. So, wait a minute, I skipped somebody. No, I didn't. Okay, so we're going to, here we, we we talk about them here. We have Babaji, Lahiri Mahasaya, only known picture of him, Sri Yukteswar, and Yogananda. So, this is our lineage uh, from this yoga, and I'm just going to bring them in. I'm going to talk a little bit more. So, basically, Yogananda Paramahamsa. Was a 20th century master who brought yoga and meditation to the West in 1920, and he formed the Self Realization Group. And he brought Hatha Yoga to the West with tours with his brother Bishnu Ghosh, who was Bikram's teacher, and Bishnu Ghosh was Yogananda's brother, and also a man named Buddha Bose, who was Bishnu Ghosh's best friend, uh, and so. He first came in when he was 27 years old. He was sent by Sri Yukteswar to the West. And so here's and here's his picture. Jimmy has him. And he's the Self-Realization Institute. Jimmy talks about how he you know studied with these masters. They're a very great lineage. Okay, so we're gonna talk about Buddha Bose's father. His name was Raja Bose, and there is a picture of him right here. This is in 1912, this is a woman named Emily Johnson. He went to college in England and he married Emily Johnson in England. He had a magic show, so he had Indian magic, he was a sorcerer, she was like his little model. Um, here you can show, here's some posters from his stuff, Raja Bose. Um, and he, People were mesmerized this. They wanted to go to the show. It was almost like a vaudeville show. So he took Emily back to India, and when he got there, she found out that he had already had a Bengali wife. Meanwhile, she had had three children with him. And she wasn't too happy about this. And what happened was, and I'll just tell you this part quickly, but it's more involved was that she was very unhappy and she was living in the house with the Bengali wife, her three children, and then when she had her third child, the Bengali wife also had a, a child the same year. She didn't like that too much. So she wanted to go back to England, but her family renounced her and said, you're on your own baby, we're not giving you anything. She wanted to go back and take her children and leave, who could blame her? And what happened is uh, Raja Bose said, Okay, I'll pay for you to go back to England, but I want you to leave your middle child, Buddha Bose. And so she actually did. And she left Buddha Bose with the Bengali mother, and she took the other two children and went back to England. So here is a picture, and the Bose family and the Ghosh family were very close. This is Buddha Bose. So you can see he has like some English features. Very good looking man. And this is Vishnu Ghosh. So they got together and they opened their own Yoga Cure Institute in the 1930s. And they did their own yoga show too. So they used to tour around. In the early 1930s, Buddha Bose taught himself the 84 asanas. And Vishnu Ghosh was more about wrestling and bodybuilding, but they, they this is a little poster health through yoga, and this is their yoga cure Institute. And there they do a thing called prescriptive yoga. So I'll talk more about them. So Buddha Bose was a consummate yogi and at one time put together an 84 asana manual, like in the 1930s. And Jerome Armstrong is a man who wrote a book called Calcutta Yoga, which I highly recommend. And he found um, the 84 Asana Manual. And he has it published in PDF form on the Gosh Yoga website, but they're going to publish an actual book. So Buddha was very conflicted because he was a devotee of Yogananda's. And he was deeply spiritual and meditative. And he was conflicted by the spiritual aspect and the physical culture aspect of things. So here we have a picture of, there's Buddha, and these are actual, this is a picture of his actual manual. It never got published. So when they always talk about Krishna, Machara, and the Mysore school, they published a book in the 1930s, and everybody thinks, oh, they're the architect of Western yoga. Well, if his book had been published, they would have been the architects of Western yoga. It just didn't ever happen. So now we're learning more about them. We, we learn. So here, um, here's just some early Bengali publications, yoga therapy for health, and this is Vishnu Ghosh and Buddha Bose, and this is the Prime Minister of India, and they actually taught him yoga. So there's a picture of it. So they were kind of interesting, and you know, we never hear about them, but we're finding out more about them now. So Buddha Bose and Bishnu Ghosh traveled worldwide in the 1930s promoting and demonstrating Hatha Yoga. And they're pictured here visiting Yogananda in California. This photo here is on the bottom. The top two, those are their passport photos. And here they are with Yogananda, and some of his devotees. Here you can see Buddha Bose, and I think that's Vishnu Ghosh right there. Here's the picture of Lahiri Mahasaya, here's Sri Yukteswar. That's in the 1930s in California at the Divine, at the um, Self-Realization Institute. So they actually came and they, the Self-Realization Institute taught Hatha Yoga until 1951 when, um, Yogananda died. And after he died, they'd stopped doing the, the Hatha Yoga. But before that, they did. So here are some actual books. I have a friend who actually studied at the Ghosh Institute. And this is just the truth here. This book, um, this book right here, is written by Swami Shivananda from Riki he published it in 1935 and here this guy swami Kulvanari, or something is his name he actually taught at the Ranchi school and so he's probably born in the 1800s because you can see he's got gray hair now this is like the 1930s and he wrote this book and is also known that Machara studied his book as well so yeah so here's uh, the title page from it and this is the Hey, this is the actual book that Buddha Bose studied for, um, yeah, by Swami Shivananda. Shiva, so he was the founder of the Sivananda D- Divine Life Society, which we're going to talk about more because he had a lot to do with yoga coming to the West. Here we have Vishnu Ghosh and Buddha Bose with their families. And um, in the top right here, they actually visited. Mysore and Krishna Machara. And here, this middle guy in the middle here, that's a 16 year old Iyengar. And here, um, this is Vishnu Ghosh, and there's Buddha Bose in here somewhere. I, I don't know which one he is, but this is Yogananda. So Yogananda made a trip to India, and he went with him. They also visited uh, Ramana Maharishi, and this man was named Paul Brunton. He was a devotee of Ramana Maharishi, and later he brought yoga to the west, but this is an interesting picture with them all together. Here they're on top of the elephant. Here is the Vishnu, uh, this is uh, Buddha Bose, and there's Vishnu Ghosh, and these are their families. And this is, um, this is, this is circa 1950. So it's just kind of interesting, they, they were very close they had a close association, they were business partners, they traveled, they taught yoga around the world. So, I have a question. sure. You said they also did the prescription yoga? We're getting to that. Oh, okay. uh, you can't do everything in every it's 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 complicated. It's like taking things out of the air, but I do I get to that. Um, so we're going to just talk about um, the magic show that they had. So, one of the things they did is they went to Japan, and they used to tour Japan with their magic show in the 1950s and 60s. So here you have Marina Ghosh. She's, she's being, you know, this is Bikram. They got her by the neck. This is part of their show. And then this is, um, what is her name? I think I have it written down here. Um, Rumabos. And so when she was Miss Bengal, 1969, and she was a consummate yogi as well. So there were actually um, two or three women that were in their yoga show. So they needed somebody to actually take over the, um, they had a yoga school in Japan, and to also run the business in Japan. It was like a family business between the Boses and the goshas. And They wanted to send a single guy. So Bikram had been in their magic show, but he had wrestling and uh, like gymnastics trophies and things like that, wrestling trophies. He wasn't actually a yogi, he was a masseuse. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) they trained him in six months in 1970 before um, Vishnu Ghosh left his body. So here's a picture of the Yoga Cure Institute, the Gosh College of Yoga. These are modern pictures. This is their yoga room, and that's Vishnu Ghosh's room at the top. This is their yoga room. And this is these are actual prescriptions. So the way that they do it is so you go in and say, oh, my shoulder is killing me. And they'd say, three triangles, four pranayamas, and, you know, do... <laughs> um, like call me in the morning. Well, call me in the morning. <laughs> 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 they give a series of... Huh? Like back in the so you know. They're still there. I have a few friends who have gone there and taken their courses, and learned this prescriptive yoga. And one of them actually lives in Geneva, and he went there. He studied with Bikram, he studied with um, Craig Vellani, and he studied at the Gauche. And. It's, it's really, he learned all about the prescriptive yoga and how you would prescribe things for people. It's a whole art to it. So there's these people, Ida Jo and this other guy who uh, have something you'll see out there. It's called Gosh Yoga. And they made friends with um, the granddaughter. And she's still running the yoga school there. And they still they still give out prescriptions, and you can go in there for healing and that kind of thing. Um, and but it's it's going to kind of die. People, there's no one to take it over. And they had a lot of bad luck in their family. So that's just a picture. So here we have Bikram. We know about him. He popularized the Calcutta style hot yoga late 1970s. He came to the United States in 1978. He set up shop in Beverly Hills after leaving Japan. So he was a massage therapist in Bollywood from 66 to 69. He was a wrestler, he had several bodybuilding awards, like we said, he was sent to Japan to oversee the Gosh Studio holdings there. Um, and then after you know, he came to the US, he started doing formal teacher trainings in 1995. Previously, as Jimmy talks about, he only trained one-on-one, and Jimmy Barkin trained with him, as well as Tony Sanchez and Paul Grilly and a few other people. So he's the one who made his own little prescription. He condensed it down to the 26 and two postures, a general formulation, a general prescription, and he upped the heat. So, And so here we have some current students of Bikram. We have Jimmy. We have uh, Craig Velani, and we—I studied with Craig Velani, and we have Tony Sanchez. I'd love to go take one of Tony Sanchez's courses. He's teaching in Spain now. Just haven't had a chance to do it. The opportunity hasn't happened. All right, so we're going to go back to Swami Shivananda. Swami Shivananda was a medical doctor, and he had been a married man. But after his wife died, he became a renunciate, a Saraswati monk, and he lived in Rikikesh and he had connections to the Dasnami Sampradaya, and he's the one, who, this bald man on the right, he's the one who wrote that little book in the 1935 that everybody looked at. And um, he, was, he was very smart as well. Now he had some very famous students, and this woman on, the, on his left is Swami Shivananda Radha, and she was a western woman who studied with him but also this man over here, Swami Vishnu Devananda, came to the United States in the 1960s. He wrote this book, this is my copy of the book, one of the first yoga books I ever had. You can see how beat up it is. And I just took a picture of it for here. So he came and he started the Shivanandra Yoga Schools in Canada and as well as the Bahamas, but you can also go to Rikikesh and you can still study. He actually left his body in 1961. But a lot of yoga came from the West, and he had other students as well that I'm going to talk about. One of his students was this man, Swami Sachinanda. This is him opening up the Woodstock Festival in 1969. He was originally brought to the United States by Peter Max, the artist. So he was a real 60s character. I think I have another slide of him opening up. So what happened at Woodstock? I actually went to Woodstock. <laughs> what happened at What happened at Woodstock was that the musical acts couldn't get in. So they had to helicopter them in. And there were all these people there. So the promoters, they were they were it was supposedly like an arts festival and there were two different Um, groups of people there doing yoga and one of them was Swami Sachinanda. so they put him right up on the thing to do like an opening ceremony so actually this yoga swami opened up Woodstock so you can see the baby boomers started having this connection to yoga like it was interesting it was something to follow something that you know people were interested in and and He also started a school called, uh, I mean, an ashram called Yogaville. It's in Virginia. You might have heard of it. My first uh, yoga teacher, that's where she went. Right. That's where she went, and I considered going there, but I couldn't afford it. Yeah, and he started in the 1970s this thing called integral yoga. So back in those days, these were some of the only yoga schools around. And he had actually been a married man, and he was actually a devotee of um, Rama uh, Ramana Maharishi and that Paul Brunton guy who I showed you pictures of with Yogananda. They're all connected. And um, when Rama Maharishi was dying, he was very upset by it. He went to Kesh, and he had Swami Sivananda uh, initiate him into sannyasin, uh, at that time, in Keshe, and then he came to the United States in the 1960s and started teaching yoga in New York City right in the 1960s. What's sanny- Huh? I'm sorry. Sannyasin? A sannyasin, there's four stages of life. There's the student, and then there's the householder, then there's the tree dweller, and then there's the sannyasin. So some people don't hit all four, a lot of it, but a sanyasin is a renunciate. They renounce their um, celibates, and they only work for the good of humankind. And so, a renunciate is to re- so there's inner renunciation and there's outward renunciation. So you can still live your life, and many yogis do without really realizing what they're doing. They renounce different things for their for their yoga, um, like sugar. <laughs> All right. so um, I'm a tree dweller So my householder phase Is pretty much over My children are all all grown I have seven grandchildren And I live um, You know, I live Kind of on the outskirts of society I don't, you know I don't drink, I don't party I don't, you know I live, I'm very oceanic I live near the ocean I'm in nature all the time and I uh, do yoga all the time. So that's the tree dweller stage. If my husband were to die and I was guided, I might become a sannyasin. So everybody goes through different stages in their life. Ananda Anandamayi, beautiful Bengali saint. And I put her picture up here just because she's so incredibly beautiful. Had many Western devotees, and she had a close association with Yogananda. So in the 70s, I heard, uh, heard about her. Well, she her picture was in Yogananda's book, The Autobiography of a Yogi, and I had read that in the early 70s. And I saw her picture, and I just loved her picture. And she people were very drawn to her. She had her own ashram, and she had many, many visitors and Western disciples. She died in uh, the 1980s, but this is just, you can just see from her picture, just... Like how incredibly beautiful she is, and she had like this incredible spiritual energy. So I just wanted to put her up there. You can't do. It. Sri Aurobindo. He also um, he died in 1950. He was an Indian philosopher, a yogi, a guru, a poet. Um, he was involved in the movement for the independence of the British rule, and he was very uh, he was a spiritual reformer. And he was all about human progress and spiritual evolution. There's many, many people who read Sri Aurobindo's books to this day. So just put a picture of him. He People in the West became aware of him. Um, and then today, Jimmy was talking about Swami Kripalu. Swami is the one in the middle. He originally came to the United States, and then he started Kripalu Yoga, which has had the ashram in western Massachusetts. This is Amrit Desai on the lower right. Jimmy talked about him today. That's a picture of him. He had a fall from grace. Apparently he was too much mufki-pufki with some of the women and they kicked him out. Did you just say mufki-pufki? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice way of saying, you know, he visited the cookie jar and <laughs> or for whatever reason, the devotees in the ashram all get together and they threw him out. And so Jimmy was even saying that when he came down here, he has a place down in Florida now. He was always considered a very beautiful man and a lot of these gurus or teachers fell from grace in the last 20, 30 years. So now we, also, we have a time where there is no guru, you're your own guru. Um, and that we're really lucky that we have a teacher like Jimmy, who um, is a fine, upstanding human being, and he carries some great energy, some great spiritual energy. And that's why I'm here. I dig the yoga. I dig him. And you don't see any fall from grace with him. So he's one of the few, because a lot of them have. You know, I'm not saying anything bad about anyone. It's just, just a fact. I'm rich, I'm rich does she? Yeah. Is she, she nice? Do you know she's her? She's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and she has. She's married to an Icelandic yoga teacher. She met there, oh, cool. there. Cool. So, yeah, and they have like the the summer here and in India and here, so he's still it. He, he teaches. still teaches. He was yeah. in Iceland this summer. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's but he's teaching and a lot of them a lot yeah they're amazing. And a lot of these teachers that fell from grace or had problems or got kicked out of their yoga or whatever, we can't really judge whether something bad happened to them or not. Maybe nothing bad happened. Maybe they just kicked them out. Who knows? We don't really know. We can't judge. I'm going to talk about Mahatma Gandhi because he influenced the West a great deal. Um, And he led peaceful uh, protests um, and cultural and government protests. He also worked with the caste system in India and the untouchables. People were denied entrance into temples and buildings because of their caste. And Gandhi thought this was wrong, so he would personally escort people who were considered untouchables, like garbage collectors or something, into buildings in a nonviolent way. He did nonviolent protests and he actually helped the liberation of India in nineteen forty seven become an independent state. So I talk about him because he influenced a lot of Western people. And one of the great oops, one of the great people that he influenced was Martin Luther King. So the whole civil rights movement really had like kind of a little has a little root in India and yoga. So, and Martin Luther King took great inspiration from Mahatma Gandhi and the nonviolent approach in the civil rights movement. And this stems from the concept of ahimsa and nonviolence. So he first used his nonviolent approach to protest a bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. And this is a picture of him. How cute is he being arrested, brave man. And he actually studied Gandhi while he was in seminary school, and he was actually in seminary school in Boston. And later he visited and met Gandhi in 1959. So we have to really see that. That really influenced our society a great deal. I'm going to talk about the Mysore traditions, because everyone talks about Mysore and Ashtanga yoga. and um, so, the Mysore traditions have some scriptures. So, the Maharaj of Mysore during the early 1800s had a book called the Sri Tattva Nidhi, and it taught 100 plus asanas. And its Krishna Machara is said to have drawn heavily from that text. Krishna Machara also drew from a scripture called the Yoga Karunta which is a mysterious scripture that he somehow memorized in Nepal. No one's ever heard of it and no one's ever found it. Um, but they think that it was closely associated with the Hatha Vasparpatiti. So that particular scripture uh, was found in a library in Maharashtra. And there's actually a Nath temple near Voreshvari in um Maharashtra that I believe it may have come from there. It had 120 asanas, including ones with dynamic repeated movement. Another word for vinyasa. Uh, So this was revolutionary and um, seated asanas came to be more and more stagnant. So this is when we started seeing in the 1800s, we started seeing more dynamic postures. So these the, um, this particular scripture had early posture sequences or what we might call vinyasa. So here's Krishnamachara. He was born in 1888 and he lived to 18, uh, 1989, so he was over a hundred years old. Widely considered the architect of vinyasa or what is known as Krama Yoga, a tantric term. He wrote a book in 1934 called the Yoga Markaranda. He had gone to Tibet and studied with a Yogeshwara Rama Mohana, Brahmachari, for six months in 1919. And supposedly there he was made to memorize the Yoga Karunta, although there is no evidence this scripture actually existed. His teacher sent him back home and said, marry and teach yoga. So later he got the patronage of the Maharaja of Mysore, who installed Krishnamachara in the Mysore Palace. And he opened his Yogashala in the palace in 1933. So showed you a picture of Vishnu Ghosh and Yogananda and um, Buddha Bose visiting uh, Krishnamachara. Iyengar's sister was married to Krishna And so that's where that, that's why Iyengar and his other brother and his sister were there at the Mysore Ma- Palace. It is said that he was heavily influenced by the Sri Tatva Nidhi. Uh, which was in the Mysore Palace Library. It's also said that he was influenced by a gymnastic-based book written by the Mysore Palace gymnast called the uh, Vayama Dapipka. And he was also said to be influenced by very early yoga pioneers, such as the Swami Kula... I can't really say his name. It's Kula Valyanananda. I showed you a picture of him in his little book and Vishnu Ghosh and Buddha Bose were also influenced by him. So Krishnamachara never left India, but he really influenced the entire world pretty much from the publication of his book in the 1930s. Then he had, oh, so we'll just, I just have some slides of vinyasa. Some people, now the Krishnamacharas and the Shtanga people will argue with you till the end of time, but the, it, They do not believe, see, a lot of people believe, especially in tantric traditions, that the vinyasa is an actual installation of the deity. So you bow down, the deity goes into your third eye, it goes into here, you come up, it goes into your heart, you go down, it comes into your back, you know, and there's actual mantras for the sun salutations. So whether that's true or not, I don't really know. And also, you'll see sometimes this moon salutation thing. Kripalo made that up. Kripalu, uh, Swami Kripalo made that up. But a lot of people really like it, and I know teachers who teach it, and um, the students love it. BKS Iyengar. He had a studio in Pune, India. He came to the USA in the early 70s. He was a student of Krishna Machara's and he got injured in a demonstration. Um, Krishna Machara made him do a split or something, which injured him. And he got mad. Krishna Machara like, had a stick and he was really mean to people and he was a grumpy guy. And he was a very strict teacher. And so Iyengar said, even though you're married to my sister, screw you and he went to Pune and he opened his own place. And even though he was a stern tax master, and he had a stick as well, (laughs) he was also known for his gentle practices and his healing practices. So he had ropes and sandbags and blocks and props to help people get into their alignment and their asanas. So it's very interesting, this woman, and her name is Sri Ramajoti Vernon, She brought Iyengar to the United States. She actually flew to India, landed in a field to find him, and brought him to San Francisco. She had a newsletter back in the day in the 1960s and then because she taught yoga and then she brought him to San Francisco and that newsletter turned into the magazine Yoga Journal. She's 89 years old. She still teaches, and she's written several books. She's actually an incredibly beautiful teacher. But she actually brought Iyengar Yoga to North America. Here is a picture of Desikachar, Machara's son, and a lot of uh, teachers. uh, He founded also his own school in Madras, and he did a lot of research on schizophrenia, diabetes, asthma, depression. He did pioneering work in the area of wellness through yoga. He had many, many Western students. Students would go and study with him for six, 10, you know, months, a year. And he was highly influential. And he was his son. He recently died like a year or two ago. Patabi Joyce. He was also um, a student, another one who fell from grace. Um, after the fact, after he died it all came out about all the abuse and all the, that kind of thing. So his son has taken over for him. It's kind of a family business and they've tried, they've actually put on their website that they're um, sorry for everything. Um, but he studied with Machara and he developed the popularized style of yoga called Ashtanga Yoga. And he worked at the Mysore Palace as a young man. He he wrote a book in 1958 called the Yoga Mala, but it wasn't published in the West until 1999. So he had many celebrity uh, students, Madonna and Gwyneth Paltrow. And he first came to the United States in 1974, and that's when he started teaching Western students. So the yoga shalas that are called you know Ashtanga Yoga they come from him. So he brought. Richard Freeman, he's a well known yoga teacher and he was a student of Patabi Joyce's and he popularized uh, Ashtanga Yoga in the 1970s. A lot of people had his video and his books. So he was one of an early pioneer in Ashtanga Yoga in North America. Here is another student of Krishnamachara. Indra Devi and she was a very early student of his and she was actually this is kind of interesting I think she was from Latvia too She was from like Lithuania or Latvia or one of those countries and She studied with him in India and then she opened a studio in Hollywood in the 1940s Very interesting woman lived to be 102 I had this is the book I had Yoga for Americans. <laughs> One of the very first yoga books I ever had. That's a picture of it. Indra Davy. And she had famous clients like Gloria Swanson, uh, Jennifer Jones, Greta Garbo, and Elizabeth Arden. So Elizabeth Arden, when she was alive, had a spa in Arizona. And they taught yoga at the spa. And it was Indra Davey's yoga. She was actually a student of Krishna Machara. And um, later, she, in her later life, like when she was 80 or something, she moved to South America, opened up all these schools in like Argentina, Paraguay. <laughs> she got around. She was kind of a, a hoot. But I mentioned her. Um, and then she, I have talked about Sri Ramana Maharishi, but this is just a picture of him. He influenced many teachers with his state of being. He had a beautiful state of being. Okay, let's get to the Beatles. So Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the founder of TM Transcendental Meditation. So in the late 1960s, uh, he had many celebrities, um, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, Mia Farrow, Donovan, Patty Boyd, John Lennon, Mike Love, he was a Beach Boy, um, George Harrison, uh, Paul McCartney, Cynthia Lennon, um, and here's a picture of them all in Riki With So he was the founder of TM and Transcendental Meditation. He also had um, connections to the Dasnami Sampradaya. And so Back in the day, you know, when like Sgt. Pepper Lonely Hearts Club Band album came out, they were all dressed in Nehru jackets and they had the Rudraksha beads on and they had been in India and they'd studied meditation and this heavily influenced the baby boomer generation. Not only the Woodstock opening, but everyone ran out and we were all wearing Indian clothes and we were all going to India and we were all studying yoga and meditation and that's we first heard of it this is Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and it's a picture of him with a very famous Tantric teacher one of the last Tantric gurus he died in the 1980s his name was Lakshman Jew and he was a great Tantric master he had western disciples as well and he kind of uh, popularized Kashmir Shaivism in the 20th century so I just showed that picture just because it's kind of an amazing this is where you know, the Dasnami Sampradaya meets Tantra. All right. This guy, Richard Hillman, he had a TV show in the 1960s and 70s, and you have to be like as old as I am to kind of remember this. He was a devotee of Ramana Maharishi and Paul Brunson, and he actually died in Santa Cruz, California in the 1980s. He died very young, and he was writing some book on Patanjali's Yoga Sutras when he died, but many people found out about yoga. Here's like a little picture on the left of his him teaching yoga in his his TV show. Swami Rama. So he started this thing called the Himalayan Institute. It's in Pennsylvania, and Rod Stryker is a famous yoga teacher. Many people have heard of Rod Striker, and he um, he brought yoga. He wrote a book called Living with the Himalayan Masters. This is actually a copy of it, it's a beautiful book. And um, I just mention it because that's another stream that came in. Okay, Baron Baptiste, everybody knows there's a power yoga studio on every corner. Where did Baron Baptiste come from? Baron Baptiste's parents were very interesting people. They were meditation teachers. Here's the father and he taught muscle control the art of conscious physical culture this is the mother make yoga your magic lamp margana baptiste and they had like this home and they were also devotees of yogananda so they had connections to the Self-Realization Institute, and they had a home like Sri Jyoti was their friend, and Iyengar was in and out of their house, and Baron Baptiste grew up in the house, and he hung around all the yoga teachers, his parents, Iyengar, Sri Ramajyoti, um and he picked up a lot. So, Because when he became a teen, uh, later in his teen years, like his early 20s, he became very interested in spirituality, and he went to live in the Self-Realization Institute in Los Angeles. And so he was living in the ashram there, and he got a job working at Bikram Studio. (laughs) And he worked at Bikram Studio for a year. Then he went out and he started his own thing. So he has the hot room and he has the vinyasa and he kind of made up kind of his own thing and it's they do a lot of heavy meditation stuff cuz his parents were meditation teachers and so uh, many people have uh, studied i go to a power yoga studio near my house they're the closest to my tribe i can get without having to drive an hour and they're good people and um, but you know their yoga's a little fast it's on the hard floor you know, it's not exactly my thing in my stage of life, but you know, they're friends of mine. And I was even thinking of taking their training just to kind of get friendly with their community. But um, that's where Baron came from. So a lot of people don't even know this. Lila's today, Jimmy was talking about her. And so she was on PBS, it was a very short show like she would, I think it was like a 10-minute show or something. I used to watch it with my mother. And we always used to watch to see what color her leotard was. (laughs) She had this long braid, and she'd do like this spine twist. And she did like very short sequences. Very lovey, nice person. But a lot of people were introduced to yoga, and Jimmy talked about her today, so we don't have to stay there long. Yogi Bhajan, he was also at Woodstock, and so... Today, we were doing some kundalini yoga, some people um, know about Yogi Bhajan and they've studied the kundalini yoga. He came uh, in the 1960s, he was actually a very controversial teacher, also very financially independent, he was very smart with his money, he started the company Yogi Tea, he had the Golden Temple Natural Foods, golden temple restaurants there's golden temple restaurants all around the world very successful chain (coughs) he also had a successful security company um and the reason that he was controversial is because um first of all a lot of people thought he was fake because he had come to the united states um and he had been like an airline porter or something and supposedly had some spiritual teachers or whatever um, but a lot of people just looked down on him. But he was very smart. He had a lot of devotees. He was also at Woodstock. And um, he started these great companies. A lot of people practice his yoga to today. And even though they don't really find a lot of basis for where the mantras come from or where the teachings come from, there doesn't seem to be like a really strong lineage. A lot of people have really beautiful experiences and like today I mean that thing we did today that fixed my shoulder <laughs> you know just remember we were we were doing this yeah right that fixed my shoulder so and I kind of like the some of the mantras or whatever I kind of like some of it but I just mentioned him because a lot of that it's one way that you'll go oh there me a, there is a lineage from you, you learned from Ramadana. Not yeah, yeah. Right, he was a Sikh. So, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, it could just be one of those things like the Shaivas and the Vishnu people just yeah, a, did, didn't, a, didn't a, like him. Yeah, but exactly. he has a very beautiful, uh, and a lot of people love him. I just mentioned him. I didn't mean to say anything bad about him, but he is controversial. So sometimes if you mention him, you never know what you're going to hear back. He was also kind of had a fall from grace. He was a little bit too with the female devotees. He was also very controlling with his close devotees, and he told people who to marry, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. so maybe people, that's okay. Neem Karoli Baba, uh, he was an Avidhut teacher, which means that he just was spontaneously awakened when he was born. And he has many Western students, such as Ram Das, Bhagwan Das, Krishna Das. Today, Jimmy mentioned Krishna Das. He's the guy who does the singing. The, the, uh, everyone has a Krishna Das tape, our, our, our record. Neem Karoli Baba was his guru. Neem Karoli Baba left his body in 1972, but he had a lot of Western devotees. So the hippies all went over there, and they kind of hung out with him. And he traveled around. He was kind of like one of these wandering ascetic yogis. And he had like a little ashram that he'd come back to, but they never knew when he was going to come and go. And he was a Shaktipat guru. He gave them all Shaktipat. And so Ram Dass, who was the LSD researcher, Richard Albert, he went to. Um, That's not the same Ram Das that was Ramadasa. Uh, no no he's an american um professor yeah. and an lsd researcher with timothy leary yeah. and he went to india and uh, neem karoli baba named him ram das mm-hmm. and while he was there he met this other man named Bhagwan das who introduced him to ram das and mm-hmm. krishna das was like playing music Krishna Das had been in a rock group and was going to make a record or something, but ended up going to India, and eventually became famous. He became the the rock star of yoga later. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so he was a Shaktipat guru. He wrote a book called Be Here Now in the 1970s. It was a book, like a square book, and a lot of people were influenced by it. So, I just have a little picture of Neem Karoli Baba. Here's a picture of Ram Das on the right. I don't know who this is. This is Swami Shivananda. He's the integral yoga yoga guy. This is Baba Muktananda. This is my guru. And here they're at some kind of. um, So, this is the integral yoga. This is uh, city yoga. (coughs) And this is. uh, Ram Dass started the Omega Institute for Holistic Studies, which is in Rhinebeck, New York. It's been there for 40 years. A lot of people study there, and I've gone there many times for retreats and things like that. I just showed these are, this was kind of, Baba Muktananda always said when he came to the 70s that he was starting a meditation revolution in the West. So here, this is, I just show you these, they've influenced a lot of Western students. This is Bhagwan Nichananda, he left his body in 1961. He gave Shaktipat in 1947 to Baba Muktananda. Baba Muktananda did his sadhana in some kind of a hut or something, and then this is his, um, this is uh, Groomai Chittalasananda, and this is who I lived with in the ashram. John Friend, here's a picture of John Friend. I, John Friend, (coughs) lived at the ashram and did hatha yoga there, and so I studied with him. And then he went off to start Anusara yoga. Anusara, how do you say it? Anusara Anusara yoga. And he had a fall from grace as well, but he is teaching yoga in um, in Texas. It's called Bow Spring Yoga now. Have you done it? No, have you? Yeah. But I don't know if I can He has a lot of Shakti, you know. Yeah, I I don't know Yeah, he does. Yeah, there, I don't know if he's broken or his wife things. Yeah, there are there are some screwy things with him. He there was too much move, too much candy jar with him too. And um Yeah, I think that what happened in his early days, when I knew him before he was famous, he was an incredible yoga teacher. He could put his finger on you and you'd go into a backbend. You know, it's just freaking amazing. But then later, after he got a lot of power, he got a lot of students. He, he you know, he couldn't handle it. So I'm almost done. Here, we've come right to Instagram yogis. Here's Rachel Breth, uh, Brethren. She's a popular Instagram yogi. Here's another Jessamine Stanley, another popular Instagram yogi. These are people that are influencers now. So it just kind of brought them in. This is kind of just how I'm ending this. So this is just, it's all over the place. I know it is, but it's hard to explain it all. But I just wanted to kind of give you how did yoga get to the West? Where did it come from? Any questions? Because I feel like sometimes, because I've not studied the background of all these different teachers, right? And I think just you get these snippets from Jimmy's teachings and the in the training, and they seem very divided or <coughs> really different. Like not divided, but just like Macharians <coughs> and This and this, but yet then you show the pictures where they're all together right there. Right. It's, it's pretty cool. It's more connected than we know. Yeah. And that was another thing. I took a course this summer. And it was one of those distance web courses with the University of London on ascetic yogis. And it's amazing how fluid, they don't have a thing. Like you could study with one teacher and one Sampradaya and you could go over and study with another teacher. It's very fluid. They exchange ideas, they go back and forth. Nobody thinks they own anything, because they're renunciants. They don't own anything anyway. They own a water pot. Their hair is in snarls and they're wearing ash, you know? And so. Yoga has always been very fluid. And that's something that people really need to know. That it's not, nobody can really own it and make it their own, you know, even though they gave it names and they try to. All right, so before we end. Om Namashabaya Guruve, Sachidananda Mutaye, Nishprapanchaya Shantaya Nir Lalambaya Te Om Shanti, 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 Sakurna Maharaj Ki Jay. That means I hail the true teacher. Good night. <laughs> you guys were very patient. Thank you.